Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, and many more. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's CorvetteTodayPodcast.com. You can also sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at CorvetteToday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group. We have over 2,200 members right now, and I'd love to have you as a member as well. I'm also excited to tell you about the new YouTube channel for Corvette Today. Be sure and check it out and see your favorite Corvette Today podcast now on YouTube. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, CTR America. CTR is the OEM supplier for chassis components for Corvette and has been an aftermarket provider for 20 years. CTR America makes chassis parts for Corvette like the tie rod assembly, RR tow link, and drop link. They worked with GM to focus on passenger safety and reducing deterioration and improving Corvette performance. CTR America also provides aftermarket parts like suspension and steering parts. They brought to the aftermarket the same know-how developed as an OEM supplier. When you need quality, superior aftermarket parts, visit CTR America at aftermarket.ctr.co.kr. Also, eTech is the expert and leader in custom flooring. Whether it's your garage floor, basement, patio, or front steps of your home, or a professional workplace, eTech is four times stronger than epoxy and comes with a 15-year warranty. There's hundreds of different patterns to choose from, and installation is completed in just one day. You can walk on your floor within 24 hours. Call for a free estimate at 913-745-3732 or visit etechcustomcoatings.com. 913-745-3732 or etechcustomcoatings.com. I've got my garage floor done with eTech and absolutely love it. I know you'll love yours too. Also, midenginecorvetteforum.com. If you'd like to join a new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. Also, a shout-out to canadiancorvetteforum.com, welcoming Corvette owners from around the world. My guest on Corvette today is someone you'll know by face and by voice. You've seen him on ABC and ESPN covering IndyCar and NASCAR. You've seen him on Speed TV covering Formula One. And you'll know him for his TV coverage on Motor Trend TV, hosting the Barrett Jackson auctions. It's Mr. Rick DeBrule. Rick, welcome to Corvette today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's amazing how many races and car events I've been to over the last 40 years, but there's a lot of them out there. Absolutely. And we're going to try and cover some of those as well, Rick. Let's start with your early career, with the automotive career that you've had. Obviously, you're a car guy, right? Talk about your early days. Who and what influenced you to be the car guy that you really are today? 
You know, that's a really good question. A few years ago, I was at, at the Indy 500 and we were having a dinner and Gilles DeFerre and, you know, it was a great IndyCar driver and some other IndyCar drivers were there. And Dr. Jerry Punch, who's a great ESPN reporter for, for many years. And everybody was telling great stories about how they got involved in racing. And they all have the amazing stories and their parents had been racing or in racing or uh, there were all these things. And they came to me and they were like, so what's your story? And I said, well, I, I read a lot of car magazines when I was a kid. I, <laughs> I built models. I mean, my family, we had a Volkswagen and a Rambler. So we weren't exactly car people. I grew up in Los Angeles and joke, I lived on a main street. So I watched all the cars go by. I used to play a game. I'd sit on the fence between my house and the next door neighbor's house with my next door neighbor. And we'd have a game to see who could identify the cars fastest as they went by. Oh, that's a Camaro. That's a Mustang. That was whatever it was nice so there was no reason that i got attracted to cars other than i just thought they were cool and and you get a kick out of this when i was little my mom figured this out and it didn't take a lot probably and i actually she put car wallpaper up in my room wow so i was literally every night every day surrounded by cars wherever i went in my room because they were all over the place that's amazing now most media people have a great story of how they broke into the business what is your great story of how you broke into the media industry so it's purely by accident so i grew up in los angeles the college i went to was cal poly san luis obispo which is about halfway between la and san francisco along the coast Coast. And I went there to be a journalism major, but I was going to be a journalism major because I wanted to get involved in racing. And I thought advertising was my entree into the racing world. And at the school I was going to go to, advertising was part of the journalism world. And so I went to, away to college and literally on my very first day on campus, I accidentally walked into the college radio station and I joked, I walked out four years later and at the end of my first year, it was so much fun playing with broadcasting. I'd never taken an advertising class and I thought, well, I'll just shift over to this broadcasting stuff. And it took me a while to get back to the car world broadcasting was so much fun. I started in radio, then I went to TV pretty quickly. And it was just such a great way to have fun and make money at the same time that I just couldn't pass it up. That's really cool. I've got a cool car story too. Everybody says, Steve, share more about yourself on the podcast. Well, you know, I've been on the radio industry here in Kansas City, Missouri for almost 45 years. And when I broke into the industry, I was a junior in college. And my mom used to say to me, Honey, when are you going to get a real job? You know, this radio thing is not a real job. It's like, Mom, you're killing me here. Come on. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents were just happy I, I was making money, whatever I was doing, and wasn't living at home. So I think they're, they're pleased with that. Here, here, my friend, here, here. Rick, talk about how and where you got started and where you worked in radio and TV. So I, once again, was went to college in San Luis Obispo, and my first radio job was at a small radio station in San Luis Obispo as the news director. I had interned at a TV station in Santa Maria, California, which is just south of San Luis Obispo, about 30 miles south. And I interned at that TV station, and then not long after my internship, when I, after when I was actually working at the radio station, I got the chance to apply for a job there and got the job. And I was anchoring the 11 o'clock news and doing sports on the early newscast for this very small TV station in Santa Maria. It was wonderful. I was there for 11 months and one week. And in retrospect, it was a lot of work. I was the only person there at night. I used to joke at 11 o'clock, I did news, weather, and sports. I edited the show. I produced the show. I was the only one in the news department. So it was kind of funny to do that. And then I got fortunate and somebody from Phoenix called me up and said, you know, I've got a job. Are you interested? And that was 1978. And I thought, well, I moved to Phoenix for a couple of years. And I just got really lucky. You know, I worked at the NBC affiliate in Phoenix. 
wonderful place to work. I worked with great people and, and great management over the years. And I ended up working there for 31 years. And it was just a phenomenal place. And working in TV news, especially during that era, was so much fun. I'm a car guy. And so every now and then I'd figure out ways I did car reviews and stuff during the course of my time there. And so it was always a great way to make money and have fun at the same time working in broadcasting. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, besides your radio and TV career, you've also written for Auto Week magazine. Talk about that. And did you like that better versus radio and television? Well, I only did a little bit of that. So what happened was, so I grew up reading Auto Week magazine. I'm one of those kids that I, literally from the time I was 10 or 12 years old, you know, I would take two hours of auto shop every day in, in, in high school. I worked my way through college as a mechanic and service writer at Sears Automotive. Wow. And so as a kid, I was always into that. And, and I used to read Auto Week. I would go down to this one store where they sold Auto Week and I'd get myself a snack and I'd eat that. And, and I'd sit there and read through, I'd go through all the want ads in the back of Auto week, which back then was like a newspaper style magazine. And, you know, there were old race cars and hot rods and stuff. And I'd be like, oh gosh, if I, could, if I only had a thousand dollars, I could buy that. If I only had $1,200, I could buy that. <laughs> and so years later, I'm working at for the TV station. This is literally the early eighties. And they had an article about the Geneva auto show. And I'm sure you've heard the saying that one picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I joke that one article they went the thousand word route. There was literally one picture of one car and then the rest was words. And it's a Geneva auto show. I want to see the cool cars. Right. I don't know. I just was kind of fed up with it. And so I wrote this three page letter to Auto Week's editor at the time. And I said, hey, your magazine sucks. <laughs> and, and, and here's why. And I, and I detailed the first two pages of why I thought they, you know, they'd gone downhill. And then the third page was, if I ran Auto Week, this is what I would do. And I sent it off to the guy named Leon Mandel, who was the editor at the time. And next thing I know, he calls me up. I'm working at the TV station. I'm a reporter at this point. Wow. He calls me up. He says, hey, I just want you to know I got your letter and I agree with everything you've said. I'm like, really? And he said, you know, we're just going through some changes. And he explained to me that, that the reason they didn't have photos was that the film had gotten caught in customs and they couldn't get it out. Oh. So there was a reason behind it. He said, but to be honest with you, we should have just waited a week and then shown the pictures. And he says, I, I went through all my ideas and said, this one's good. This one I can't do this one. But, you know, and he said, if you ever have anything else, any other ideas, let me know. So I don't know what got into me. About a week later, I wrote my first article, which was about how I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's really hot. I was tired about hearing about how everybody has to winterize their car and deal with snow and snow tires. I said, no one ever worries about us in summer and how our chapstick liquefies in the center console. And yep. we get third degree burns when we put our arm on the windowsill and we can't put our sunglasses on if they've been in the car because they'll scorch our forehead. And he published it. And I was like, I'm printed in Auto Week. This is it. I, I finally arrived. And I ended up writing a number of articles over the years. Not a lot, but just enough. And he was a wonderful person. He was actually very supportive of my TV career as well. So it was just enough to kind of, you know, get my finger in. And interestingly enough, somebody who saw that first article that I wrote, because it said Richter Bull's a TV reporter in Phoenix, Arizona, was interested in putting together a race package in Arizona for a TV broadcast they wanted to do. And that's how I got noticed. Amazing. What a story. So did you enjoy that better than TV and radio? Oh, no. To me, TV and radio. First off, TV is my first love. I love being on TV. I love the, the visual way you could tell stories and having been involved in all that, whether it's TV news 
or the racing broadcast I've done or the Barrett Jackson broadcast I've done. It's always been so much fun to be able to do that. Do I like writing stories? You know, over the years, I've written a lot of car reviews and other things and had that opportunity. Yeah, it's fun. Radio, I always love radio because you can talk about something you don't have a picture of. I could describe a 500-foot car with 300-foot tires, and I don't have to show a picture of it. I can just describe it. Right. Right. Very cool. Well, Rick, let's take our first break in, in segment number two. Let's talk more about your TV career and racing on Corvette Today. VetFinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website with classified ads starting at just $25. And every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, VetFinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit VetFinders.com, the Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E, Finders.com. KC Trends Motorsports has been the Midwest's largest custom wheel superstore for over 25 years. They specialize in C8 wheel fitments from the top brands in the industry like HRE, Vossen, ADV1, Avantgarde, and more. They ship daily from their Kansas City location to all upper 48 states with the best pricing and inventory in the country. Need tires? KC Trends Motorsports has you covered. They have tires in stock from Michelin and Pirelli. Plus, they can help you with a customized wheel and tire combo for your Corvette to truly make it one of a kind. And if you need wheel ideas, no problem. Simply go online to kctrends.com for their car and wheel visualizer. See the wheels on your Corvette before you purchase. Also, there's dozens of wheels and tire combo pictures to look through online to spur your imagination. And their expert staff is there to help you with wheel and tire sizing and offsets for your C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. Visit them online at kctrends.com. See them on Facebook and Instagram. Make any Corvette a one-of-a-kind with KC Trends Motorsports. Call them toll-free, 877-962-5200. KC Trends Motorsports. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today is Barrett Jackson TV announcer, Rick DeBrule. In the second segment, we're going to talk about Rick's TV career and his racing career. Rick, you started with ESPN in 1987, where you covered all kinds of auto racing. Talk about those years and your most memorable experiences in auto racing. Well, first off, I'm really fortunate that I've been covering auto racing for a long time. And in fact, even when I was in college, we were mentioning earlier, I went to college in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is not that far from Laguna Seca Raceway up near Monterey. So when I was a freshman, I actually got credentials to go cover the K&M race. Even though I was not actually running down the racing road that early in terms of a, a real career, I was already trying to start that. And then, as I mentioned, I wanted to get involved in racing, but I kind of got detoured into broadcasting television news, which once again, I love, but I was a car guy and I had to figure out how to get back to it. And as I mentioned, I wrote that article and somebody reached out and said, hey, we're doing this small race in Arizona. Would you? It was an Eloy Grand Prix, which is Eloy is this little town about halfway between Phoenix and Tucson. On, and they were doing a street race and they were going to broadcast it. And he said, would you be willing to do a BR play-by-play guy? I was like, this would be wonderful. And trust me, it was a dinky little race. I've seen the video since then. It's amazing. I mean, people are crowded right up to the street. It's about as unsafe as you could possibly imagine. But that was my first true race broadcast of play-by-play. And it was a fun experience. The guy in Arizona loved racing. He worked for the local cable company, did their production. And that one led to another one, which led to another one. 
We were doing an IMSA GTO standalone race, a sports car race at Firebird Raceway. And I ended up kind of doing the play-by-play next to a guy I'd never met who, as it turns out, worked for a national company that was producing races called World Sports Enterprises. Hmm. And about a month later, he called me up and said, hey, I need somebody to do a race for USA Cable, a Trans Am race in St. Petersburg, Florida, just to be a pit reporter. Would you be interested? I'm like, well, would I be interested? Absolutely. So this was 1987. And so that my very first race was for USA Cable in 1987, the St. Petersburg Trans Am. I worked alongside two legendary broadcasters now, Bob Varsha, who did Formula One for many years, and David Hobbs, former race car driver, who was the commentary for Formula One for many years and other races. And it was a great experience. And apparently they liked me enough that they brought me back to do a IMSA sports car race for ESPN from Portland, Oregon. And that was my first race And through pure blind, dumb luck, it just one race led to another, which led to another. And I grew up a sports car guy. Not that I didn't like NASCAR, but sports cars were what I loved. I loved Indy cars, Formula One, sports cars. I love that whole road racing world. And that's what I got to cover on a limited basis because I was still working at the TV station. So I would run off. And I'll tell you, there were some years where I was doing 24 to 26 weekends of racing in addition to my full-time job. Wow. Fortunately, I have a wonderful wife and she managed to keep the home fires burning with my two kids. But it was wonderful. And, and the opportunities, the very first race I did in Portland, Dan Gurney, for those who know racing from the 60s and 70s, Dan Gurney was a racing god. And he ran an IMSA GTO team at the time. You know, I got to interview Dan Gurney. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a guy who had been one of my racing heroes. And that was the great fortune I had as time went along. I got to meet and interview and more importantly, get to know and be friends with these people that I'd only been reading about over the years. So it was such a great opportunity. And once I got into that ESPN world, once I had that foot in that door, I wasn't going back out. <laughs> I don't blame you. That's a great experience. And I'm like you. I love IndyCar and Formula One. And that's when you moved over to Speed Team. TV after that, that had to be an awesome experience. Yeah, I started doing Formula One on ESPN. The very first Formula One race I did was called at the San Marino Grand Prix. It was a racetrack called Imola, which they're going back to. In fact, it's the second race of the Formula One season this year. I got Barb Varsha, who was the voice of Formula One at that point, had to do another race. So they brought me in to do the play-by-play. And I'm sitting there in, essentially in Italy, because Imola is in Italy, although San Marino was this little postage stamp size country within Italy. I'm doing it and I'm surrounded by you know, all these Formula One people. You know, it was during the Ayrton Senna era, you know, one of the greatest Formula One drivers of all time. And oh, yeah. I'm there with Nigel Mansell and all these people. And I, I'm pinching myself like somebody's paying me to go to Italy to cover a Formula One race. So I did that one. And then I did the German Grand Prix. And every now and then when Bob was gone, I'd get tapped to do those. And every now and then I do pits when they were doing, for example, the Formula One race in Phoenix. They did that for three years. I did the pits for that race. I did pits for the Canadian Grand Prix. So slowly but surely, I was kind of getting my way into that system. And then at a certain point, I was doing other racing, mostly sports cars, and I was doing some Indy Light stuff and some other things for ESPN. And then ESPN lost the IndyCar contract to, back then was called CART, Championship Auto Racing Teams. They lost it to Speed. So Bob Varsha wanted to go off and do that because even though Formula One may be the Grand Prix circuit, back when we were doing Formula One for speed, and unfortunately, it's the same way today, we didn't go to the races. We would go to Charlotte, North Carolina and watch them on a TV monitor. Wow. And then we tried not to pretend we were there, but we also didn't say we weren't there. 
So Bob really wanted to go to a race. So when the cart job opened up, he said, well, can I go do that and actually be out? And I filled in for a couple of years doing the play-by-play for Formula One. So I was the voice of Formula One in the United States for a couple of years, which was a great experience. The only live race we got to do back then was the U.S. Grand Prix at Indianapolis, but such a great experience. And I was doing play-by-play during the Michael Schumacher era, you know, the, the guy who won seven world championships. I was there during his Ferrari years, and he was absolutely amazing to be around. Great driver, great champion. In fact, we actually had a problem. We would do the teases saying, okay, what are we going to talk about to tease this week's race? Oh, Michael Schumacher is going to win again. (laughs) (laughs) And so after a while, one of the teases I remember we did was, you're going to tell your children that you saw Michael Schumacher. (laughs) <laughs> because he's going to be so historic. Of course, little did we realize that Lewis Hamilton would come along and, and equal, you know, at some point in time. Right. But the ability to be a part of Formula One during that era was so great, you know, as Fernando Alonso was coming up and Jensen Button was there and all these great, great drivers. It was such a great opportunity to be a part of that. And once again, I'm a car geek, right? I'm like the kid who grew up with the cars on my wallpaper. So the fact that somebody was paying me to go to all these races Formula One races around the world, or at the very least to call them from my studio in Charlotte was great. Absolutely. And, you know, even in the radio industry, we always say, I do the job for free, but I never tell them that. And it's probably (laughs) the same way you did, right? Exactly, exactly. You moved back to ESPN as a pit reporter for the Indy 500, NASCAR, the IndyCar race series on ABC. Was that kind of like coming home when you returned to ESPN? Yeah, it was. I, and I have such great friends there. It's just a great organization. And so I've been working at the TV station for 31 years. It was a great place. But we were an NBC affiliate, and I could never cover the IndyCar series because it aired on ABC. A little conflict of being on different networks. So when I decided to leave the TV station, I was really fortunate. I called up my contacts at ESPN and said, hey, I'm going to be a little more available. And they were making some changes at that moment in time. And they just decided, you know what, you're the right guy. And so I ended up coming back. I actually came back and did some, back then was called NASCAR Nationwide. Now it's called NASCAR Infinity, some stuff for that. And then the next year I became a part of the Indy 500 and IndyCar broadcast team for the races that were on ABC. And once again, for a kid who grew up in Los Angeles, listening to the Indy 500 broadcast live on the radio before they used to televise it live. I remember I'd be out mowing my lawn with my little transistor radio listening. To become a part of that broadcast was so spectacular. The very first year I did it, which was 2010, I remember it was on Saturday night. And our Saturday was relatively, we didn't have a big schedule the day before the race because there's so much homework we knew we were have to do that night. So we all leave the track a little bit early and there's not a lot that was going on. And I walked out onto the front straightaway of the track after pretty much everybody left. And literally I could see not a single human being in either direction. And I just thought about all the ghosts of all the drivers. Ray Haroon, who won the very first race in 1911, Troy Rutman, who won it in 1952, you know, all these drivers that over the years had had been there. And I thought this is such a historical place, you know, with such historic racing that's happened here. And you look at that yard of bricks and you just marvel at it. And to think that I was going to be a part of that. And that year, you know, I didn't know how much longer I was going to get to do it. So I'm just excited I'm doing it that year. And I'm getting to do it for nine years before ultimately the IndyCar contract moved to NBC. And so ESPN no longer does IndyCar racing. And I always joke, I didn't get fired, but I, I had nothing else to do, you know. Yeah. But it was such a great opportunity to be a part of those races 
to be a part of IndyCar racing. And, and once again, go back to, I'm a car geek. I'm that kid that grew up loving that stuff. And the idea that I could actually be sitting there with Dario Franchitti and Dan Weldon and Will Power and Juan Pablo Montoya and all these people who are such amazing, Elio Castro Nevis, such amazing race car drivers. And so many of them are such great people. The ability to spend time with them. And like you say, most people have to pay to be there. I remember sitting there, I'm on the front stretch before the start of the Indy 500. All the cars are lined up, you know, all the people down on the grid. And I'm in my fire suit, my ESPN fire suit. And I look up and there surrounding me are 300,000 people. Because that's how many people. It's the largest one-day sporting event in the world. 300,000 people. And I'm thinking, you know, they all paid to get here. <laughs> and somebody's paying me to stand on the front straightaway, to talk to the people I only get a chance to read about, to be in the pits, to be right in the center of the action. And I get to do this as my job. This is how I'm making my living. It was the most exciting thing on the planet. Absolutely right. What an outstanding career in racing and motorsports. Did I forget anything, Rick? Did we get all the blanks filled in? <laughs> well, I can tell you over the years, I was really fortunate. I joke, I did everything from Grand Prix to Gravel Rama. It's an event outside of Cincinnati where they have cars. You know, they do this mountain of gravel. They have to climb up. I did the Mint 400. I've done Pikes Peak. I've done races in Mexico and Canada and Europe. It's just to have the opportunity for pretty much anything with four wheels. I love it. Now, drag racing, for example, wasn't my personal fanaticism. But boy, I can appreciate everything those drivers go through and what they do. I used to sit out on the line at Firebird Raceway when they'd be taken off and just marvel at those top fuels. In fact, I was just the other day, I was looking at a story I did on Shirley Muldowney when she came back after her accident in the mid 80s and did her first race back and think, boy, the ability to be in a top fuel dragster after you've been hurt in one and get back in. And that's what always amazes me about these drivers. Somebody asked me not too long ago, is Lewis Hamilton who makes $40 million a year? Is he really worth more than Steph Curry or any of these other great basketball players? And I said, well, how many of them risk their life on the court? How many of them run the risk of not being able to come back and see their family when the game's over? Unfortunately, IndyCar racing is so much safer than it used to be. Every year they improve. You know, they put the windscreen on last year. I mean, every year they get a little bit better. I have friends, drivers that I've known and liked, you know, Justin Wilson or Dan Weldon, who've died in racing. To me, it's a great sport. And every time, every single time we lose somebody, I sit there and go, is this the right sport to be involved in? The people in it overall that keep coming back are so good. The drivers that I know are such great people. And the sport itself, that combination of man and machine is such an amazing thing. I keep just getting pulled back into it. Great stories, my friend. Great stories. Rick, let's take our final break. And in the third segment, we're going to talk about your Barrett-Jackson career and Corvettes at Barrett-Jackson on Corvette Today. American Hydrocarbon, your one-stop shop for custom interior, exterior, and engine bay items for your C4 through C8 Corvette. We can help you create a custom look for your Corvette with carbon fiber or 10 different color patterns and styles. We've served customers in over 28 countries all around the world. Whether it's a custom-made engine cover for your new C8 mid-engine Corvette or custom-made C4 interior upgrades, American Hydrocarbon can help you transform your Corvette into a best-in-class show car. Our products have been featured in VET and Corvette magazines, so give us a call. 813-476-5638. That's 813-476-5638. Visit our website at AmericanHydrocarbon.com or email us at pat 
at AmericanHydroCarbon.com. Let us help you make your Corvette the car you've always wanted it to be. American Hydrocarbon. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want too. But what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. You're listening to the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today is TV analyst and play-by-play announcer for Barrett-Jackson, Rick DeBruel. In this third segment, we're going to talk about Barrett-Jackson and Corvette and what the role Corvette plays in the Barrett-Jackson auction. Rick, talk to me about how you got connected with Barrett-Jackson and how you got your job with them. So I moved to Phoenix in about 78, and by then the Barrett-Jackson auctions were already underway. In fact, I think I attended my first Barrett-Jackson auction. I'm going to guess it was 1980, and back then it was a much smaller affair. They held it at Phoenix Municipal Stadium. I always remember there was a swap meet for parts out in the parking lot. Oh, yeah. I remember going through the swap meet trying to find fun stuff. Living in Phoenix and being a car guy, I went to it. I think I, I went to it every single year. I don't think there was a single year where I didn't go to it. Back then, there was just the one auction. And so when Speed Vision started to broadcast the auction, a couple of times, it kind of said, hey, if you need somebody, I'm here. And of course, you know, at that point, they had their crew and everything was fine. And then one year, they reached out to me and said, hey, it looks like we need somebody else to join our team. Could you do that? This was 2003. And I'm like, could I do that? Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, this, at this point, Speed Vision had become speed. And so I'm like, yeah. And I was already doing Formula One for speed at that point in time. So they reached out and they said, we'd like you to do it. And I'm like, well, what's my job going to be? Like, well, we don't know. We're going to make it up. I'm like, all right. So that's when they created the concept of that kind of roving reporter who would introduce and preview cars. And so I did my first one in 2003. And then I've literally been a part of the broadcast ever since. I think I'm in my 18th year now of broadcasting Barrett-Jackson. And it's just been a blast. The cars, and I look at how the cars that cross the block have changed in that time. The muscle car phenomenon was really just fully taking hold there when I started doing these broadcasts. And I look at where the prices have gone. And we've already had, you know, we've had some cycles that have gone through there and the quality of the cars and the event itself. I mean, if you've never been to the traditional January Scottsdale auction, boy, it's not a three ring circus. It's a 12 ring circus. <laughs> Once again, the last full January auction that we had was a year ago in 2020. And I think there were 17 or 1800 cars. And not only are there 17 or 1800 cars, there's 17 or 1800 amazing cars. When you talk to people, sometimes we'll be at one of the other auctions and they'll say, oh, I'm working on a Corvette or I'm working on a Baby Bird or whatever. Well, how come you didn't bring it to this auction? Oh, that's a Scottsdale car. 
Let me tell you, that's going to be, it's, I mean, we're doing a great job. This is going to be a Scottsdale car. Wow. So people bring their best stuff and the variety. I mean, it's amazing. Everything from pre-war classics to post-war to muscle to modern machinery, you know, whether it's a muscle car from the late sixties or a hyper car from last year, it all shows up at Barrett Jackson. It's just an amazing collection. And once again, when you go to Scottsdale, there's the manufacturer showcase. When you first walk in the door and you see all the new cars that they've got on display, if you turn right and go through the tents, and it's this big, huge, long series of tents, there's vendors selling all kinds of fun stuff. And then there's all the cars lined up inside. And then there's five or six tents of cars outside. And then there's the auction block, which is just this cacophony of sound and action and excitement. That's amazing. Rick, talk about the approach Barrett-Jackson takes to the auctions, because it's much different than most other auctions. And I will tell you, I don't really go to the other auctions for no reason other than I go to enough Barrett-Jackson auctions that, you know, normally we have four a year. I mean, obviously last year we only had one in Scottsdale and then a second one in Scottsdale in October. This year, we've got the one last month at March in Scottsdale. We've got another one now scheduled for June in Las Vegas. We're not sure what's going to happen for the rest of the year after that. But back to the point, I don't really go to a lot of the other auctions. Like, I mean, I watch you know, them on TV sometimes. The thing about Barrett-Jackson is it is an event. It's not just a car auction. It's a lifestyle event. I mean, you go in there and there's so much going on. I have friends who love to go to the Scottsdale auction and know nothing about cars. They're always like, can you get me some tickets? Like, what do you want to go for? Oh, the people watching, the show, the party, you just want to be there and be a part of it because it's such an event. The other thing about Barrett-Jackson is that traditionally, they're almost, I won't say 100%, but traditionally, they're mostly non-reserve. So you can't have a reserve and have the car there. And I fully understand why some auctions are more reserved and less reserved. When you've got a car that's worth $5 million, and the last thing you want is somebody's buying it for $2 million and you just lost $3 million. But the great thing about a no-reserve auction, I always believe that it's great for the people who are buying the car. Yeah, it's a little dicier for the seller, but for the people buying the car, it's true honesty. If a car is worth a certain amount of money, it's going to sell. And when you see the market begin to fade in cars, it's the honesty of knowing that, you know what, there was no extra bidding that went on. There was no trying to get it up to 50000 or 100000 that you actually had to have hands in the air and people bidding on that car. Pretty amazing. Rick, with this being the Corvette Today podcast, Talk about some of the more memorable Corvettes that have crossed the auction block there at Barrett Jackson. So the thing that always, and, and I remember it vividly, we were doing our first auctions up in Las Vegas. And traditionally, when Corvettes cross the block, classic Corvettes, C1, C2s, and to a degree C3s, stock was always king. In fact, we used to joke, What's a great modification to put on a early Corvette? Nothing, because you only devalue at the moment you did that. But then we went to Las Vegas, and suddenly we began to see the rise of the resto mod. And suddenly, for the first time, we were seeing modified Corvettes getting the same dollar, the same buying power that stock classic Corvettes were going to get. And that came on, I mean, that's been over a decade. And we began to watch that market start to move. And then a couple years ago, and I remember it was at Scottsdale two, maybe three years ago, we suddenly saw the Corvette Resto Mod just take hold and launch. And suddenly you had maybe a 62 Corvette or a 61 Corvette that had been Resto Modded. And I mean, some of these are amazing. I mean, they're pieces of art and jeweled dynamics that are underneath. I mean, they're just spectacular pieces of machinery that are done to the highest standard. 
And then suddenly you see a Restomod customized version making 250, 300, 350. And it was all day long. We were seeing car after car after car. So suddenly this market in the Corvette Restomods has changed everything. The ability to take a stock Corvette and put an Art Morrison chassis and a C5, an LS6 engine or whatever it may be and stick it underneath and suddenly make it to that next level. So it's got the look of a C1 or a C2, but the performance of a modern car, boy, it changed everything in that whole market. Absolutely right. All right, it's time to get personal, my friend. What do you drive? Is there a Corvette in your garage? <laughs> well, there used to be. One of my all-time favorite Corvettes is the C5 range. I've always been a big fan, and partially because I like kind of the flowing aspects of the body. I had the first year of the C5. I bought it several years later. Love that car. It was great. You know, 330 horsepower. There's a big change between the C4 and the C5 in so many different ways. And, and as I always point out, the C5 had 1,800 fewer parts than the C4. Now, there's a good and a bad to that. It means if you had to replace a part, it was probably going to cost you more because there were more elements that were a part of it. But what it really meant was it was a tighter car. There were less squeaks and rattles. You drove a C5, and boy, you know, and, and I, you know, don't get me wrong, C4s are great little cars. But C5s were just that next level up. The technology where they put the transmission in the back and what they'd done with the car. And really that C4, C5, C6, you know, really built off that same chassis. I just love that. Now, I will tell you today, I got a Mustang convertible out there. It's just such a fun car. I live in Phoenix. I like to have the top down. I think it's a great bang for your buck kind of car. And I also need a back seat. I do some carpool driving with high school students. And every now and then I have to stick somebody in a back seat. So with the Corvette, I couldn't quite pull that off. That's true. And we'll give you a pass on that because the Corvette doesn't have a back seat. <laughs> exactly. It's okay to have a Mustang convertible on Corvette today. I will tell you, it's one embarrassing story that I had to sell the Corvette because I bought another car. I already have a two-car garage and I didn't have enough room in there. And the car that has taken the place of the Corvette in my garage is a 1958 BMW Isetta. Wow. And if you don't know what an Isetta is, look one up. It's a little goofy car they made in the late 50s and early 60s by BMW. People call it the Urkel car. Yep. And it's got one door that opens in the front, one cylinder motor, 13 horsepower. And the reason we bought this, my wife and I both went to the same high school together. It's a pretty frightening story. We've been together forever. And our high school principal had one. And it was the unofficial school mascot painted the school colors. It was at all the football games. Every time we'd score a touchdown, he'd pop a cheerleader out the top and drive around. And so this car became available, you know, I think it was five, six years ago, whenever it was. And we bought this car because we bought it, the Isetta, from the high school principal. No kidding. The exact car that had been driving around our high school. So it's pretty embarrassing to say I kicked a Corvette out to put an Isetta in. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Do you have a great Corvette drive story? Oh, I do. So I live in Phoenix, and for many years, they had the GM Proving Grounds, which were just outside in Mesa. And we would go over there back when I worked at the TV news station, and we would do stories. And they're a great group of people out there. And there's one particular guy who was in charge of their test drivers, and he knew I was a car geek. And so he'd call me up when stories would happen. So one day we're out there doing a story, and we finished doing the story, and he said, you want to go fast? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I said, and this was, I want to say, this was probably towards the end of the C4 era. Okay. They had a C4 sitting there, and they had a circular test track, complete circle. It had two separate angles on it, a low angle and a high angle, banking. And so he said, hey, I got a test driver who will go out with you. You can drive. She'll go with you. It was a female. Wow. So we go out, 
And I'm in the C4 Corvette, probably an 83 maybe. And I get up on the track. They had a line about midway up the track. And the rule was below the line, 90 miles an hour, above the line, above 90 miles an hour. So I get up to about 90 miles an hour and she's like, all right, go a little faster and let's go above the line. So boom, above the line, 100 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour. 130 miles an hour, 140 miles an hour. And I mean, it's a circular test track. So it's really designed to make it easy. And it, it is so easy, except my arms are on the steering wheel and I've got a death grip on it because I'm thinking <laughs> I'm going 140 miles an hour. Now, I'll tell you that one of the rules was you had to have the headlights on because obviously they wanted for safety reasons that the, any car on the track could see the headlights. Sure. So remember the C4, the headlights pop up. Right. So I'm still 140, 145, 146, 147, 148, and it just stalls out at 148 miles an hour. Wow. And I thought if I could just pop those headlights down, I could get 150 out of this darn thing. But the funny thing is, so I do a number of laps at 148 miles an hour. And finally, I'm like, okay, I think I'm good. I, I slow down a little bit and I get down to about 120. And remember, I had that death grip on the steering wheel. And suddenly at 120, now I've probably done 10 or 15 laps. I just felt so relaxed. And I said, can I go back up to top speed? And she goes, sure, absolutely. So I floor it, get up to 148 miles an hour because I could never get over that. And it was amazing how relaxed I felt because it was a perfect circle, perfect banking, the ability to have that car have total and complete control. But I always thought, man, if I could just pop those headlights down, I could have made 150. <laughs> That's a great story. Rick, you've interviewed countless people from rock stars to presidents. Talk about some of your most favorite interviews and what happened during those interviews. Oh, man, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I've been so fortunate over the years. I mean, for example, Dan Gurney, a racing guy, this guy that I grew up reading the articles about and getting to actually interview him. And I will tell you, he's passed away a couple of years ago. Dan Gurney was one of the greatest, nicest people on the planet. And I remember I was interviewing him and I was a little nervous. He goes, just relax. It's OK. <laughs> so to be able to talk to somebody like that, especially in the racing world, I can tell you the first interview I ever did with Roger Penske, it was during the split between USAC and CART. This goes back to it was the late 70s, I think, at that point in time. And I was interviewing Roger Penske thinking, this is Roger Penske. This is the guy, you know? And I remember talking to him and then getting to interview, whether it's Michael Schumacher or Jackie Stewart. And, and once again, you're right. I mean, have I interviewed a lot of people across the full range outside of the automotive world? Absolutely. But, you know, I got to spend time with Carol Shelby. You know, I got to spend time with these people who are legends and ask them questions about. And I always think I didn't ask nearly enough questions. <laughs> I actually had the good fortune of getting to spend quite a bit of time towards the end of this gentleman's life, a guy by the name of John Wire. And John Wire, for people who don't know, ran what's called the Gulf Wire Racing Team. And he was responsible for two of the four Ford GT victories in 68 and 69, and then was responsible for the Porsche that's in the movie Le Mans that Steve McQueen drives, the, right. that blue and orange one. He was responsible for making that team. And his team was responsible for taming the Porsche 917. Getting to spend time with John Wire and talk to John Wire was just such a blessing. And I always think I needed to ask more questions. So I always tell people, anytime you get a chance, when you're with a legend and you know it's a legend, you got to ask those questions. What was it like to race the 917? What was it like to have the four GT40s? What was it like for Dan Gurney to win at Spa in 1967 with a Formula One car that he built himself? If you're around that legend, you may feel odd. Ask the question anyway, because trust me, most of them are perfectly happy. 
I've been really fortunate. I've been a number of times I've had a chance to spend time with Rick Mears. Here's a guy who's won Indy four times. Tell me about this and tell me about that. And it's not for a TV story, but just the ability to ask the question of somebody who is truly a legend and was there in the thick of it all. It's a priceless moment. Maybe we just need to ask our parents about the cars they drove so we could remember those stories a little bit better. But when you're around those people who have that special moment, whether you're asking them for business purposes or just because you want to know, ask people questions, especially about their cars, so that we can be the generation that transfers that information on. I am writing that down as we speak, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, talk about the Barrett-Jackson schedule coming up for TV broadcast. So we've already had one auction. That was the rescheduled January auction that was in March at Scottsdale. We have another one scheduled for Las Vegas that's going to be in June. You can just check barrett-jackson.com. And these days we're on the A&E network. So we split between History Channel and FYI. We've moved over. We used to be on Velocity and Motor Trend and Speed and other TV networks. But now we're on History and FYI. Right now, those are the only two that we know of for this year, but I know they're working hard to try to come up with some more. So stay tuned, keep checking the website, and hopefully there'll be more. And more importantly, maybe next year we can get back to having a full schedule because Barry Jackson has four per year and get back to a full schedule of having four. Yeah, that would be great. Getting back to normal is what I'm all about. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Not that you're not busy enough. You're also an accomplished motivational speaker. Talk about where you've spoken and what groups have you spoken to? First off, I love communication. And really, when you get down to it, my story, my career has always been about storytelling and the importance of storytelling. And so over time, I've also, I got a master's in media management from the University of Missouri, which is not far from you. And so I've over time kind of developed a consulting business associated with communication. I do presentation coaching and media training and all that kind of thing, but I also do keynotes. And my keynote is about the importance of communication in any organization. But I do it by telling the story of how Alexander Rossi won the 2016 Indy 500, the 100th running of the race, as a rookie. And he didn't win because he was the fastest car, although he was really fast that day. But they won because the team communicated so well. And it's an amazing story. And I was fortunate that day. I was part of the ABC broadcast team, and I was embedded in his pit along with several others. So I got to hear all the radio conversations between the team owner, Brian Herta, and Alexander Rossi. And it's such a fun story to tell about how everything they went through that day and the importance of how communication mattered. And so it's a really fun story to tell that has some great lessons about how communication can help any organization. I want to hear that story. I want to see you speak sometime because I want to hear about that because that was amazing when Alexander Rossi won that 100th IndyCar race and he was a rookie. And that's just pretty darn incredible. Yeah. And Alexander's an amazing driver. And I'll tell you what, that day he was the fastest driver early on, but they had problems in the pits and they ended up having to come up with a whole new strategy to help him win. And their strategy was to save fuel. And so instead of being the fastest guy, he actually had to be one of the slowest guys. And when everybody else stopped for their last pit stop, he stayed out. And it's an amazing story. Those last few laps, I can tell you at one point, Brian Hurd is, he's the team owner and he's the strategist. And they'd hooked up with Andretti, so they had good technology information. And I go up to Brian Herta with about two laps to go because I know that Rossi's out there and he's almost going to run out of fuel. And I, and I go up to Brian Hurd and I said, Brian, are you going to be able to make it? Can he go the distance? Brian held his hand out and he had his thumb up and he looked at me with his thumb up and then his hand started to shake. (laughs) And it was, I joke, it was the universal sign for optimistically maybe, but I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's a great story. Rick, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, how can they reach you? Pretty simple. Just go to rickdubrule.com. I've got a website that has all my information for my presentations and that kind of thing. I'm rick at rickdubrule.com. I joke, if you can't find me, you're not looking hard enough. <laughs> That's great. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Corvette today. The stories were simply outstanding. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Corvette today. And thanks to our sponsors, CTR America, who makes chassis components for the C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. Visit their aftermarket items online at aftermarket.ctr.co.kr. Also, American Hydrocarbon at AmericanHydrocarbon.com and KC Trends Motorsports at KCTrends.com. And don't forget E-Tech Custom Coatings at ETEKCustomCoatings.com or call 913-745-3732. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.